Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series 7, The Root Vices. This series looks at the seven root vices from which other sins grow and identifies ways we can cut the root vices and become more like Jesus. Today's text is going to be Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. This is a familiar verse you have probably heard before. So hear now the word, the true word of the living God. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. If uh, many of you remember the uh, Disney movie, it was a cartoon and it came out as a live action uh, a year or two ago, which was Beauty and the Beast. And you know, there's a, a, a song in there that says, you know, it's a tale as old as time. And they're kind of talking about the love story. But actually the tale uh, at the center of it is actually the story of pride, which is as old as time. Because we're going to see it really begins with Satan himself. And then as Tony referenced this morning as we were opening the meeting, moving down to Adam. But in Beauty and the Beast, as they tell it, if you remember... Uh, the story background is actually that there was a handsome prince. He was very handsome, and he was very arrogant about it. And so he mistreated a visitor that came to his door and then discovered she actually was able to put a curse upon him, and she did. And so he went from being the most handsome man in the land to being this horrible beast. And he had a period of time to try and convince a woman to love him, uh, which was not going to happen because of his looks anymore or anything else because he was this hideous beast. And the longer he was a beast, the more he tended to act like one. And the only way he was going to be able to do this was actually going to require a massive change in his character. If he didn't learn to humble himself and become a very different person, he was going to remain a beast forever. And in fact, if you remember, all the people around him were affected by his arrogant, prideful behavior. All of them were changed as well. And so this is a rendition of pride going before a fall. And actually, if you think about many of the Disney cartoons that are so popular, for a great number of them, there's the same thing. The Emperor's New Groove, Snow White, remember Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. Many Disney cartoons, the central flaw is actually pride. So you could go home and watch any of them and and learn much about these seven vices. So today, we're going to ask ourselves, what is pride? What what do we mean by it and what do we not mean by it? And how does it act as a root vice, a vice that feeds into other things? And then what's the opposing virtue? And what practices resist pride and encourage that opposing virtue? So that's what we're going to talk about. Now, to understand pride... We begin by looking at our text, and notice it tells us here, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, I've spoken many times of in Hebrew poetry, you don't go by rhyming like we think of or a certain number of words. Their dominant motif is parallelism, where you restate the same thing basically again or intensify it or define it a little bit more. So notice here, pride is linked with the haughty spirit, destruction is linked with the fall. They are parallel. So the writer is letting us know what he means and what he does not mean by pride. And pride is a haughty spirit. It is an arrogance that is inside a person. So when we're speaking of pride, 
we are not talking about normal self-respect, knowing that I am the image of God and that I should not be abused or uh, you know, used by other human beings. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a haughty, respire, a, a haughty spirit. Nor is it the desire to do your job well. Sometimes people use the phrase, you know, I take pride in my work. And that's not something where we jump up and say, well, you've given in to one of the root vices. What they mean is, I'm trying to use the gifts I was given to do my job as well as I can. And we're going to see with many of these vices, they've kind of taken on extra meanings associated with that word. And so we have to carefully understand. So pride is not this thing of uh, either self-respect or doing as well as you can. Or if you're from the South, my, my grandmother used to say all the time, honey, I'm so proud about that. And she didn't mean that I'm taking a, a sense of boosted up arrogance. She really meant I'm happy about that. I'm happy for you. None of those things are what we're talking about. Notice here, pride is a haughty spirit. It is an excessive estimation of myself and an excessive focus on myself. And the vice of pride is really, at its core, a constant focus on me and my glory. It's the habit of self-preoccupation and self-promotion. I'm constantly, you know, if, when you think about it, when, when we go back to the, the queen uh, in Snow White, what, it, what is it that she looks into? The mirror is the sign of pride because there's nothing I would rather gaze upon than myself. And then I need to tell everybody else that they need to be gazing upon me. That is what is at the heart of pride. Now, when we think about this, we look at those characters, and the reality is we all hate pride in others. So that's why pride is the most hated and also the most practiced of the root vices. Okay, we, we hate it when we see it in others, but we tend to like it in ourselves. And so there are some of the root vices that, that some of us may not struggle with so much, but virtually everybody struggles with pride. And we're going to see why as we move along. Now, what this means is since pride is this haughty spirit, this self-preoccupation, this self-focus, there are multiple problems with it. Number one, as we notice in our text, it leads to destruction. It leads to a fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Because we are not created in such a way that we are meant to be the self-focus, that we are meant to draw things unto ourselves, and therefore when we attempt to do it, the weight of it more or less caves in upon ourselves. And that's what the writer is talking about here. We can't bear the weight of that. And for that reason, we're told in the Scripture, in Proverbs 8.13, we're told that God hates pride. This is God's wisdom personified in Proverbs 8. And speaking, she says, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. So when God's wisdom personifying the voice of God, God's way of viewing things, looks and says, I hate pride and arrogance, that's meant to make you and I sit up and pay attention. God's saying there's something deeply wrong here when you behave in this manner. And in fact, we're told in the New Testament that because of this, God opposes the proud. This actually comes out of Proverbs as well. James is quoting it. We'll come back to this later. But we're told that's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Now the reason for that is because God is saying, this is so contrary to who you were made to be. It implodes upon itself and it's destructive to you and everything around you. I hate that because I know what its end is going to be. Its end is going to be nothing other than destruction. So because it's destructive to us and all that we love, God hates pride. And so this is why we have to understand it and cut it from our lives because it is not going to lead to flourishing. It's in fact going to lead to destruction. So let's dive in and talk about more about this root vice of pride and how it works. Now as I've told you, all of these vices grow out of this disordered love, the soil of disordered love. And actually there's a symbiotic relationship. If you know much about farming, they have to do sometimes crop rotation because certain crops pull certain things out of the soil and they put other things back. So you rotate the crops because this next crop will actually replenish or fertilize in the soil. And that's kind of what goes on here. Each of these vices kind of pulls things out of this disordered love, but they feed back into it. And so this is where we need to, to get that changed, so to speak. And so how does pride relate to disordered love? Here's how I would define pride for what we're talking about in this series, and this is my definition, but uh, it's the thing that we're going to drive at. Pride is a disordered love that excessively focuses on myself, seeks to exalt myself above God and his will, refuses to accept my own God-given limitations, or confess my failures. Now, we're going to unpack each aspect of this as we go along, okay? But it is this, here's how this orientation works out. And it's a disordered love. My love is to be aimed towards God. But what pride is doing is it's, it's reordering my love. It's pointing it in a different direction. And where is it pointing it back to? Myself. And that's going to have a whole host of ramifications. So let's dive into each of these. First, pride's a disordered love that excessively focuses on myself. Pride, at its core, is the posture that I'm the center of the universe, that Everything actually should revolve around me. Uh, one of the, the writers, as I was researching this, Gerard Reed, said this, sin as a state of being is the ultimate black hole of the spirit, the implosion of an inwardly gravitating self. The black hole is pride. Now, if you know much about physics, you understand we've discovered out in space there are these black holes. And what happens if anything comes near a black hole? It's sucked into the black hole, and what happens to it? it, it yeah, that's it. It's history. It, it ceases to exist. And what Gerard Reed is saying is that, look, when, when we are inwardly focused, we become like a black hole. But the center of that black hole, what really is the black hole is pride. And so when pride is there and it's dominating, it not only is destructive to itself, but anything that's in its orbit, so to speak, gets sucked into it and it will destroy anything around it. Like a black hole, pride sucks everything into itself, placing its desires, its wants, and its needs above anything and everything else. So if I am near that black hole, all that matters to the black hole is what, how am I going to meet its needs? And if I'm destroyed in the process, well, that, that may be too bad for me. But after all, I'm not the center of the universe. That bit of pride is. And so if it's left unchecked, like a black hole, pride will destroy everything around it in an attempt, and it's a vain attempt, to fill itself. 
But the more it sucks in does not fill the vacuum. It just leaves it there. Now, this is even true, let me point out. Sometimes pride takes almost the opposite tack of what we would think, and it appears as self-degradation or self-condemnation. But sometimes why those are there is because what am I attempting to do? Keep the focus on me. If promoting myself's not working, then I'll swap, swap to the opposite tack because what's really important is I need to be the center. And so pride can actually appear in many different guises, but the central thing is always the focus needs to be on me. I need to be the center of everything. Now, one of the reasons this is a problem, which leads to the next part of the definition, is who actually is the center of everything? God. But if I'm attempting to be the center of everything, then we have a problem. And so pride next seeks to exalt myself above God and his will. At its core essence, pride wants to be God. The other sins we're going to see are valuing other things more than God. But in this case, pride itself is a little unique. It's trying to be God. So Jason Meyer, uh, who wrote a chapter on pride in the book Killjoys, which is on the seven deadly sins, says this. Other sins lead the sinner further away from God. But pride is particularly heinous in that it attempts to elevate the sinner above God. That's what's going on with pride because two of us can't be the sinner. It's like if two galaxies start circling close to each other, one of them's going to suck the other one into itself because there can't be two head people here. And so we're demanding that we be elevated even above God. And so rather than glorifying God and enjoying him forever, which is what we were made to do, pride seeks to glorify and enjoy itself. The sign is the mirror. I want to see and look at myself. So therefore, the problem comes in that pride refuses to submit to God's will. Because if I'm going to submit to God's will, who am I admitting is superior? God. So I cannot do that. I want to establish and enforce my own will is supreme. So this is why when John Milton wrote Paradise Lost, the thing about you know, the original fall of humanity, in it, the character Satan actually utters the line, I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's pride. I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven, because I will not submit to another. I will not admit another is greater, even if that other is in fact God. And so this week, one of the devotions we'll do is in Isaiah 14, where it's speaking to a king, but it seems to be kind of personifying and putting in the terms of Satan. It was saying, you were among the angels of God. You were beautiful in your glory, but you said, I will ascend, and I will be like the Most High but you weren't, you were brought down for the very effect. Peter Kreft, the uh, ethicist and philosopher, put it this way. He said the song in hell is, I did it my way. That's what it is. I did it the way I wanted to do it because that's what pride does. Now, what that leads to then is we run into the problem, of course, that does it work for us? Can we actually exalt ourselves above God and his will? No, you and I are limited beings. But pride refuses to accept my God-given limitations. 
You see this evident in our culture right now where we are doing and trying everything to say we're not limited. I'm going to download myself onto a hard drive and I'm going to live forever. Uh, no, you're not. doesn't work that way. Uh, I'm going to keep taking all these vitamins and do stuff and I'm going to be able to live forever. No, you're not. You have limitations. But pride rails against that. Pride wants to be God, and by definition, God is unlimited, and therefore, pride can't accept whatever limitations we are given. It rails against our creaturely limitations, and it also rails against any limitations in the gifts we've been given, in the things we possess, and what our reputation is, which is why pride leads so often into the other vices. Many of the early thinkers kind of put pride as a root. Uh, one of them, Gregory the Gate, great, instead of using the organic metaphor we are, spoke of the vices as being an army, and he listed eight of them, and he said, and that general over the other seven generals was pride, and he commanded the others and sent them out. Because if you think about it, pride works through envy because it's not right that that person's got gifts I don't have. I ought to have the gifts. And anger comes out because if I'm in fact God, then the universe ought to work the way I think it ought to work. But how often does that happen? I mean, that won't even happen when you're driving home, right? And so pride expresses itself through anger. Pride expresses itself through greed because whatever is out there, I ought to have it. Lust, I ought to have it. It is expressing itself through the others because it will not accept limitations. And the problem is, is you and I are limited. That's at the core of who we are. We are creatures. Now, then what happens, of course, when we try to bear up under this, and I'm trying to be like God, and I'm trying to refuse my limitations, does that actually work? No, I, I fail. And another word for that is I sin. But how is pride going to respond to my sin? It doesn't. So the next aspect is pride refuses to confess my failures and my sins. Nothing shows that you and I are not God like actually paying attention to my behavior. It gives the lie to who I'm proclaiming myself to be. Now think about it. Tony actually mentioned this this morning when we started. When Adam and Eve, who are as much like God as a creature can be, highest creature in the universe, as much like God as anything can be, the very image of God. But when Satan tells him, if you eat this fruit, you'll actually be like God, as if somehow they could be more like God. And they pluck the fruit, and they eat it, and pride has gone before a fall. When they actually fall and God comes up, does Adam confess his sin? Because once you've given in to pride, you remember what Adam actually says is, it was the woman you gave me. So I don't know, God, you and Eve can debate. It's either her or you, but it's not me. I'm not the problem. And of course, Eve says, it was the devil made me do it. Long time before Flip Wilson said that, right? Somebody else, it can't be me. Because if I start admitting I'm wrong, then I'm admitting I have failures, and then I'm admitting I have limitations, and then I'm admitting that I'm not God, and I'm admitting I'm not the center, and I can't go back down that chain, so i got to stop it here. I can't confess my fears. Think about another example, King Saul. You remember when Samuel the prophet shows up to Saul, and it seems somewhat, his sins seem minor next to David's. 
But the difference is when the prophet shows up to David, David says, I have sinned. Saul says, not really. You're, you're not quite understanding, Samuel. I really did what I was supposed to do. And he tries to spin it. And pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And he loses the kingdom. Not even really for the seriousness of the first sin, but for the prideful, arrogant refusal to confess his sin, to own up to what he's done. So pride causes us to do virtually anything to excuse or hide our sin and avoid an open, simple confession. And we don't have to go to Saul and Adam. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? You, you, remember, you remember the Fonz in Happy Days who was so cool and everything, and then in one episode he had done something wrong and he tried to say he was sorry? Anybody remember that episode? The older folks will at least. And he, he just, stu- he's like, I'm so, so, he just can't get the word sorry out. Boy, is that us. How hard is it to simply say, I am sorry, period. No, but let me explain why. Man, we find that hard. So pride will cause us to do anything other than that. Now, that's what pride looks like. It's this disordered love that's excessively focused on myself. It's attempting to exalt myself above God and his will. Therefore, it refuses to accept any kind of limitations that God has given, and I will not confess my failures. It's just a chain. Now, it also works. Every one of these causes something that happens in my identity. And these two, the the disordered love and the identity thing, is what feeds all of our other sins. My identity ought to be found in God. But pride causes this. Pride causes me to seek to find my identity in myself. Because again, if I'm the center, where would I find my identity? In me. Once again, where does pride love to gaze? In the mirror. That's why it's always the sign. Whenever you look at fairy tales and stuff, it's almost like if you see a person with a mirror, oh boy, we've got a problem coming here. And so we're created again in God's image. And our true identity is found in being as much like God as a creature can be. And our joy is found in our character being formed and fashioned to be like Jesus. And therefore our joy is found in submission to God and his will. But pride says, no, I'm going to find my identity and my joy in myself and my will rather than in God. And all I can say is good luck because it's not the kind of beings we were made to be. And so sometimes what it will do, of course, when I start trying to do that, kind of like a black hole, it's collapsing on itself and it doesn't work. So sometimes we then kind of try to bolster that up by getting other people to tell us that we are really all of that. And that can come out in something as simple as I post something on social media and how many people liked it. Or I make a comment and how many people came up and told me how, how great that was. Are people recognizing what I did or do they just kind of pass by? We're saying, what are other people thinking about me? And the reason I'm doing that, usually underlying that, is pride. Because I know there's a part of me that's saying, I'm not everything that I'm trying to portray that I am, but I need other people to build me up and tell me that I really am all of that. Because otherwise, 
the whole house of cards is going to tumble, and I'm going to have to go back to the base and admit I'm not the center. I'm not really all of that. Now, let me give just a few examples of how it can lead to some other sins, and then we're going to turn to applying the word. Pride is, again, I spoke about the other root vices. It does that. But what are some other ways? And you're going to have to do some work this week to think through how it does. Sometimes pride works up when we degrade other people in speech and actions, or I speak in such a way to try and exalt myself over others. Why would pride make me do that? Why does pride make me degrade somebody else? Because if I'm going to be the center, then I've got to be greater than you. And sometimes I'm apparently obviously not. So the only thing I can do is bring you down so that I look better. And so gossip can come from pride. Slander can come from pride because it's the attempt to make myself the center. How about using other people rather than viewing them as the image of God? If you and I actually believed other human beings, at every moment, if we were being conscious, that person is the very image of God, would I use them, abuse them, throw them away? We wouldn't. We also wouldn't in the way we treat creation. But if I'm prideful, I think creation is mine to use however I want. I can abuse it. I can rape it, pillage it, plunder it, and it doesn't matter because, after all, I am the king. But if I realize God is the king, it changes the way I treat other people. I, in fact, treat all of creation. Let me give a very specific example that is in the news right now. How many of you have heard about, you know, the hashtag MeToo? All the sexual abuse scandal. Why did those men think they could do that? Have you noticed, sometimes it's not even lust. Sometimes it has virtue. It's just them saying, I'm more powerful and more important than you are. And I can use you and then discard you and I don't doubt that many of these guys don't even remember a lot of these instances because it's just a stream, a pattern of I'm the center and I use whoever's around me for whatever I want at the moment. And you are so unimportant to me that though I have shattered you and ruined your life, I don't even remember it. Is that not arrogance? Are those people thinking at all, this person is the image of God? And it's rampant in the culture. Another way is pride manifests itself in hypocrisy where I lie to other people to give a false image of who I am or to avoid confessing my sin. This in particular, the, the giving a false image was a particular species of pride known as vainglory which literally means empty glory because the Hebrew word for glory originally meant something that was weighty. And vainglory is a glory that's not weighty. There's actually nothing there. And so the entire exercise is me making it look like there's something there when there's actually nothing there. And if you want to watch that, just turn on your TV this afternoon and watch every commercial that's going to come on because all of them are selling Nothing, literally. There's nothing being sold but an image that if you do this, everybody... I, I watched one the other day and it cracked me up. I was in the gym, I'm working out, and the TV in front of me had this picture. I don't think I'd ever seen it before, but it was some perfume 
that Julia Roberts was walking through and she put on. And apparently, ladies, if you buy this perfume, you will look like Julia Roberts after about eight hours of makeup and hair and an evening gown. And as you touch walls, they all disappear. And the entire room looks at you. And when you walk into the ballroom, you touch the wall and it becomes a stunning vista of all of creation out in front of you just by putting this perfume on. I mean, it's amazing what this stuff can do. Did they actually tell me anything about the perfume in that commercial? Nothing. They're selling me an image. And guess what? We do the same thing. And in fact, this is one last way that pride works out. I, I was shocked by this. But in the earlier church, one of the ways they spoke of vainglory and pride of working was a love of novelties. Now, that sounds weird. And they didn't have the things we have, but you know what it is? It's, I've got to have the latest gadget that came out. And you know why? Not because I need that gadget, but because of what that makes you think about me. It makes you realize I'm important. I got the latest gadget. I got the biggest car. It's what we refer to as conspicuous consumption. The point is not just consuming. It's consuming in such a manner that you look and you say, that bread is something. And so I constantly need whatever is new because it makes me stand out. And I should stand out. Everybody should constantly have their gaze upon me while I gaze into the mirror. Those are all ways that pride can work itself out. You can think of some more this week and how it might work in your life. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Well, the first thing, obviously, is if we're going to cut pride... We've got to embrace the opposing virtue, which is humility. Because humility will act with the soil of our loves to change what's going on there and, and change this cycle. Now, we can see this directly in James chapter 4, verse 6. We saw this verse before, uh, 4, 6, and 7 here, and we'll look at verse 10. James says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So notice that these two are opposed to one another. And he says, submit yourselves then to God. Notice how this is going directly against what we were talking about. Pride does not want to submit to God. James says, here's what humility looks like. It submits to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. And in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You can see the same pattern in 1 Peter 5, by the way. Now, what this means for us is, notice, pride goes before a fall, but humility is willingly lowering ourselves, and the effect is God lifts us up. So we can try to lift ourselves up, and the end result is we fall, or we can humble ourselves, and the end result is God lifts us up. This is why Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, the the great leading church figure in the 1200s, was asked, what are the four cardinal virtues? And he said, humility, 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 and humility. Because as pride feeds into the other vices and sins, he was recognizing, man, if you want to grow virtue in your life, you've got to begin with humility. Because as long as you're arrogant, you're not going to grow any other virtue. So it really begins with humility. Now, what do we mean by humility? Because again, it gets misunderstood as well. Well, the, the central thing about pride is, who am I trying to make the focus? Me. It's about me. And it's a constant focus on me. So if that's what, if that's what pride is, well, then humility begins with less of a self-focus and more of a focus on God and others. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love this quip. 
Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself. It's just simply thinking uh, of yourself less often. Because pride's an excessive self-focus. Humility's the practice of fixing our gaze on something other than self. Pride is a worshipful gaze into the mirror. Humility is a gaze out the window at what God has done, what he is doing in the world and other people. Pride's a mirror. Humility's a window. Looking away from myself. Now, the other thing that humility does then is humility is the willingness to confess our sin to God and others. Pride refuses to do that because it's trying to maintain its self-focus. Humility is willing to confess our sins to God and others. Notice in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, this parable that Jesus told regarding a Pharisee and a tax collector. It says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Some translations have translated the Greek prayed to himself. Either way, it's the same result. Notice his prayer. This is, a, this is an awesome prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Glory be to God, amen. Right? What, what's the entire focus of that prayer? I mean, and notice, it's vainglory. He's promoting himself to God, as if God doesn't already know what this guy does or doesn't do. And, and he's concerned that there might be competition, so what does he point out? What are all other men apparently like, every other one out there? They're adulterers and evildoers and robbers, and then, oh my word, there's this tax collector over there. That's the way he prays. But then notice Jesus goes on and says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Nothing in his prayer about what he's done right, just a, a humble recognition before God. And so Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The ultimate point of the parable is there in that last phrase. Jesus says, let me explain to you a story that would show this. I'm going to picture what exalting yourself, what pride looks like, and then what humility looks like. And I'm telling you this because pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. But the other part that he's telling us is, but if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. And so Jesus here tells us that humility openly confesses its sin to God. Pride tries to justify itself, but humility casts itself upon the mercy of God. They're exact opposites. But not only is that the case, humility is also willing to confess its sin to other people. And this is where a real rub comes in. James chapter 5, verse 16. So James had told us earlier about you know, God opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble. Then he comes down to chapter 5 and he says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Why does James say that we need to confess our sins? I mean, can't I just go to God and pray? Well, I could, but here's the reality. 
God has set it up in a way that he expects me to confess to others, and there's something powerful when I do that and then them praying for me. Because you know what God is really after? It's not getting more noses to pray for me, just to have, and he's counting those. It's me humbling myself and admitting I need other people to pray for me and admitting and confessing my own sins. And it's especially important if we have sinned and it's a complete open acknowledgement, I am not the sinner. I am not God. I need help from God and, in fact, from you. And that's what we do there. So humility is what we're doing. What are the practices of resistance? Well, we've already kind of gone over them, so I'm going to run through them real quickly, but there's three of them here. Number one, confession is a practice of resistance. Because nothing undercuts pride like open confession. First, confession of sin. Now, that includes direct confession to God. At the moment, when we're singing on Sundays, we're oftentimes confessing our sin. And prayer, we ought always include times of confession in our praying. It's just a regular part of my thing. And I don't, it's not like I've got to really try and scratch my brain and try and remember the last time I sinned. It's usually pretty clear. It's right there on the surface. And when we come to the Lord's table, we're going to do it in a few moments. So it is a confession of sin to God. But it also includes that thing of confession of sin to other human beings. And let me say, it's mandatory to do this if we've sinned against them. Which means if you have family members and you have friends, you're going to have lots of opportunity to practice this. I have confessed my sin more to my four children than any other human beings alive because I was around them all the time. They occasionally made certain root vices like anger pop to the surface. And when they would, there's only one response. It's not just simply, well, I'm the dad and they'll just have to get over it. What's the proper response? Get down on my knees in front of my child and say, what dad just did was wrong. I am sorry I spoke that way. I confess my sin. I ask you to forgive me. Let me tell you, when you do that, it's kind of hard to pop up the next moment and say, okay, back to me being the center of the universe. And that is, that is humbling. Look another person in the eye and say, I sinned. Not, not, not a foible. I sinned. What I did was wrong. It's also just a good practice, even if I haven't sinned directly against that person, whether it's through an accountability partner, a spiritual friend, a mentor. I got some people that we just talk with one another about struggles we're going through. We confess our sins to each other. It's just important to do, to have somebody that knows, man, I I struggle with this. I blow it. I sin. And let me tell you, it's actually even more humbling than confessing to God. Because somehow I, I know God already knows. And At my core, I realize God is bigger and greater than I am. But I'm looking at you. We seem to be kind of, it is hard to confess it. But for that reason, boy, you want an ax to cut some pride in your life? Sit down with somebody and say, let me confess to you what I did. And not just in general, yes, I'm born a sinner. I inherited Adam's sin. I'm talking about I did this at work today. I spoke this way to another person, or I slandered my boss, or I did this thing very specifically and tell another person, and I I, want to confess that to you, and I'm asking you to forgive me. 
Not because that person's an intermediary between us and God, but the practice itself cuts away at the sin of pride. Now, as you're doing that real briefly, don't do it in such a way to create a problem for the other person that they weren't even aware that this thing had gone on. And what I've done now is I feel better. Now your life's a mess, but hey, after all, I'm kind of more important than you are. We're not not talking about that, okay? But open confession is really important. So I want to encourage you over the next week, if you haven't before, confess a sin to another human being. Tell them, I need to tell you this is what I did. And I'm, I'm confessing it openly and honestly. And if you're hearing it, particularly let's say it's from a family member, don't say, oh, that's all right. Let them unburden their soul. And then speak the grace of God. Now, another thing is confession for weakness, needs, and fears. Sometimes it's not directly a sin. We just need to confess to other people, I'm not good at this thing. I fear this. This this is the thing that's keeping me awake at night. I'm I'm struggling with this. Can you pray for me? See, it's the opposite of vainglory. In vainglory, I'm always trying to get you to think more of me. This is just me saying this is who I am. This is quite honestly what I'm like. Let me pull the makeup off and just let you see me as I am. So I encourage you this week, rather than displaying your strength, tell somebody a specific weakness. Tell them, here's something I just, this is, this is a way I, I'm not good. I, this is a limitation I have. It's not even necessarily a sin. This is just a limitation I've got. There it is, the way God made me, and therefore I need people around me to help with this. Now, that's the first one, confession. And it's particularly helpful to root out pride, especially in those who most deeply value their privacy. If you're thinking, I'm not just that, I'm just not that kind of person, so I'll look for something else, you're specifically the person that needs to do it. The more private you are, the more helpful confession will be to you. And let me tell you, this is one of those, and I understand why they did it, but you know, as it developed in the church and you got the screen and the person's not supposed to know who you are, that undermines the value of it. It needs to be face-to-face. I'm looking at you and you are looking into my eyes and I'm telling you, this is what I did. So particularly the more private you are, the more helpful that will be. Secondly, there is a practice of silence. Silence. Sometimes monks take vows of absolute silence, that they're going to serve and they're going to do things and they're not going to say a word. They don't talk about anything. That's not generally possible for most of us because don't say I'm taking a vow of silence so I don't answer my boss tomorrow. That's not going to work well for you, okay? But there is a way, try a day or a week where you don't even bring up yourself or your accomplishments at all. Uh, One of the people that I've read a lot on this, Rebecca DeYoung, she has her class say, they'll go through an entire week and say, don't try to mention yourself at all in a conversation. And keep a journal on how you're doing. And she said they were all just disgusted at themselves and how virtually impossible that was. To just keep the focus somewhere else and try and not bring themselves up. And that gives us the attempt to focus on listening to somebody else rather than just waiting to reply and get the attention back on myself. Now, if confession's particularly helpful for those who are more private and don't like talking, this is more helpful for those like my wife who like to talk and be up front and share about all that, right? So I'm going to practice confession this week. Some of y'all need to practice silence. Obviously, see, this is the temptation and difficulty. I actually find confession easier than I do silence. So for me... 
a better axe is probably silence rather than confession. This is why you've got to meditate and think through this, which way works for you. Last area, last practice, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table, is service. Service. There's confession, there's silence, there's service. You remember when Jesus comes on the night that he's being betrayed and he gets down before the disciples and what does he do? Washes their feet. And, and who had that task in the Roman Empire? Slaves. I, I mean, it was the lowest of the low. You, you had to be the bottom rung of the slave class to even do this. And you remember Peter was horrified by it and jumped back and did it. But Jesus said, I'm setting you an example. And like Jesus washing the disciples' feet, we have to humble ourselves in serving others, especially serving people who have no hope of repaying us. And then not taking nine selfies and posting it and talking about it, just simply doing it. Okay? Just, just doing it and serving other people. That's what we're called to do. So we actually, service and silence can go together. That I serve and I don't do, I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not telling anybody about it. I'm just looking for a way to doing it. So service is a great way. And if you've ever done this and you've worked with somebody who is really down and out and struggling, you'll know how humbling it feels inside yourself. You feel changed in the interaction yourself. So there's something, because we're not coming in saying, hey, I'm the great one, I'm here to help. It's realizing, hey, by the grace of God, I could be in the exact same position right now. And I'm extending myself to help, and I, I'm not expecting anything out of this. That is a humbling experience. I encourage you. And you got lots of great opportunities. If you want to do it, you can see Karen uh, for working down at the Lighthouse Shelter. A great opportunity to sit down eye-to-eye, talk with people, hear their story, let them open up and share. Working down at the detention center uh, with James, there's great opportunities to be able to serve or just look for a way to reach out and serve your neighbor and don't even let them know that you did it. It's a great way to undercut it. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this is going to be a table of confession today. So we're going to practice confessing to God. And what we're going to do in a moment, we're going to put up and we're going to have a corporate prayer confession. We're going to stand together and we're going to pray a corporate prayer confession, which is actually from the Book of Common Prayer. And it's really good because it covers our sin. And it's speaking of what we do. And we're going to pray that together. And then as you receive the elements after we do that corporate prayer confession, we're going to pass the elements out. And uh, we're going to have silence. There's going to be no music. There's going to be no anything. So we're going to kind of practice a little bit of silence here for a moment. And I want you to seriously ask God, how's pride working in my life? Which of these ways are you convicting me over? And ask the Lord to speak to you and then confess that sin. Don't be Adam. We're not looking for fig leaves here. Just come clean and confess it before him. Perhaps, you know, it's going to be pride. It may be something else. If the Lord brings something other than pride up, confess that. But whatever we're doing, let's be open, honest, and specific in what your confession is. Not just, oh God, I'm a sinner. This is a specific sin, Lord, you've brought to my mind. And I confess that. I repent of that. And uh, then we're also going to profess our faith that in Christ we're forgiven, that the gospel applies to us. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin by standing up together, and we're going to confess our sins together here. 
And I encourage you, let's read it out together. Beth, if you can go ahead and go to the first screen. We will read it out together uh, and confess our sins. So let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are repentant. According to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are repentant. According to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name, amen. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We do humbly confess our sins, and we ask that as we come to this table, you would bring those sins to our mind and then bring to us the assurance of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Let's be seated, and we're going to go ahead and now begin with communion. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If I can have the ushers come forward, we're going to pass the elements out. And again, what I want to encourage you to do is as they're passed out, I want you to seek the Lord regarding what uh, sins that he's calling to your mind and you want to confess, and then we're going to take together in just a couple of moments. So we're going to go ahead and do that, and I'll let you start doing it now as they're passing the elements out. Lord Jesus, as we take this bread, we recognize that it is a symbol of your body. And Lord, we have broken it. We have crushed it into pieces because that is what our sin has done. Lord, we've asked you by your Holy Spirit to reveal to us our sin. Lord, we have confessed very broadly what our sins are, Lord. Things we have done, things we have left undone. Lord, Father, the sins of omission and commission. Father, we've confessed that there's no help in us apart from your grace. But Lord, we now also confess deeply. Lord, specifically. Father, I confess areas I've been struggling recently, Lord, with envy, 
Lord, not rejoicing at your blessing of another, ultimately, Lord, because of my own pride, because I want to be one who is blessed. I want to be one who is recognized. And Jesus, I recognize that that sin put you on the cross. That sin was a hammer blow and a nail through your flesh. That sin was you bearing the wrath of God. So Lord, I confess that and we confess whatever things you have brought to our mind. Lord, our pride wants to conceal, but in humility we reveal, we open ourselves up before you. Lord, we pray like the tax collector in the parable. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And Jesus, it is not the sin of another, but it is my sin that you took on the cross. I repent. I confess. I ask your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, take and eat. But Lord, we are grateful that the gospel does not stop with just our confession of sins. Lord, we are grateful that you promised to us that because of the blood of Christ, we are cleansed, we are purified, we are made holy. And so we who are sinful and fallen can come into your presence, not crouching in fear, but boldly to your throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. And so, Lord, we look away from ourselves and our efforts, and we look and say thank you for the blood of Christ. Lord, we say thank you that you have promised to us, Lord, free and full pardon from our sins, that as deep as is our pride, Lord, your grace is deeper to root it out, to cleanse us, Father, to purify us and make us holy in your sight. And so, Lord, we say thanks be to God for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is able to cleanse and purify us from all sin. Take and drink. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that this week, as we continue to meditate and think, that you would be speaking to us. We ask you to shine the light of your word and your knowledge upon our hearts, our minds, the deepest places in our souls. Lord, we want to bear good fruit, and we want to be rooted and grounded in Christ so that our lives overflow with joy. So I pray this week you would show us wherever pride has taken root in our lives, and that you would help to form and fashion humility in us, that like Jesus, who was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself uh, a servant and did that for us, that Lord, you would work that in us. And his mind, his attitude, his heart would be formed and fashioned in us. I pray, O oh Lord, do this by your word and do this as we practice confession and silence and service this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we will conclude with a word of benediction. And I encourage you to receive the blessing and the grace of God
to empower you this week. May God our Savior help us for the glory of his name. May he deliver us and forgive our sins for his name's sake through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master. And God's people say, Amen. Be blessed in the Lord this week. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.